Good day and happy Thanksgiving. Welcome to episode five of the Intangible Investor Podcast, brought to you by Knowledge Leaders Capital, where we discuss everything under the sun related to financial markets, economics, and innovation. This episode was recorded on November 26, 2019. I'm Bryce Coward, Deputy Chief Investment Officer and Portfolio Manager for Knowledge Leaders Capital, and I'm joined today by my colleague Stephen Vanelli, the Chief Investment Officer and Chief Executive Officer of Knowledge Leaders Capital. Well, it's been a couple of weeks since we really got a deep dive into a topic related to innovation. So today I wanted to get back to that with a review of some recently released national accounts data, as well as some bottoms up company data, um, summing up our views on innovation investment. But before we get into that, Steve has really been keeping a keen eye on the Chinese Yuan and is going to update us um, with respect to some trends that that he's picked up and first flagged a couple of weeks ago. At that time, Steve was one of the first professional investors that I saw taking note of a possible trend change in the Chinese Yuan. And I thought Steve did a great job explaining how that possible trend change could affect asset prices. So with that, Steve, can you give us a quick update on any trends related to the devaluing Yuan that, that you're seeing and uh, specifically related to this high beta trade that, that's taken place recently? Yeah, Bryce, great, great question. And, and, and that's exactly the perspective I'm going to come at it from, uh, from, from, from a beta standpoint. So if we look at the Invesco S&P 500 high beta ETF, the SPHB, it's up about 10% over the last three months. But if we widen that lens and look back since the beginning of 2018, uh, the, the price is really flat. It was about 45 at the beginning of 2018. It's about 45 today. Um, in contrast, when we look at the Invesco S&P 500 low volatility ETF, ticker SPLV, um, we see a different uh, picture. While the uh, fund has not uh, gone up by 10% in the last several months, um, over the last, you know, roughly two years, um, the fund's up considerably. In the beginning of 2018, uh, it was a $47 fund, uh, and currently it's about $57 uh, price. So, you know, over the expanse of the last couple of years, encompassing um, uh, the better part of uh, uh, the trade war, um, we, we have a, an experience of high beta recently outperforming, yet lower volatility uh, over the longer expanse here, uh, having demonstrated some leadership term, uh, trends. And that, uh, that those trends are, are related to a few things. Um, one, uh, uh, interest rates, and, and two, as far as, as, as our models suggest, suggest excuse me, the, the Chinese yuan. So, um, uh, I made a simple model of the SPHB, so the high beta relative to the SPLV, low volatility. So high beta relative to low volatility. And it tracks 10-year interest rates very, very well. They both made bottoms in, in, in 2016. So, so rates made a low in the relative performance of high beta to low vol made a low in 16. Made an intermediate high in early 17 and, and an ultimate high in, in in the middle to latter stages of 2018. And, and since the end of 2018, uh, for the most part, high beta has been underperforming and, and rates have been, uh, have been falling. And so uh, recently um, we've seen, uh, we're starting to see a divergence and, and that divergence is 
um, as documented in a, in a in a previous podcast, we we observe the Chinese yuan uh, uh, troughing uh, roughly at 7.18 on November the 8th, and and that day seemed to represent um, a pivot day for for a variety of assets. Um, 10-year treasury bonds, term premiums, and the like. Um, but what's interesting is that ever since that inflection point, um, high beta, uh, represented by the SPHB, has continued to outperform low volatility, SPLV, by roughly 4%. And, and, and we're looking at that and, 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 and thinking that perhaps um, uh, it, 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 would, it would pay to uh, issue a cautionary tone, let's say, on that uh, long high beta short low volatility uh, trade. Um, when we compare uh, recent behavior of, of 10-year treasury bonds, let's say, um, high beta is outperformed by about uh, 4% relative to low vol um, over the last three weeks, or over the last month roughly. Uh, at the same time, 10-year treasury bonds are down by 20 basis points. Um, again, rates and high beta to low vol tend to have a, a fairly strong correlation. So this is an interesting divergence that we're noting. Um, to be clear, high beta is continuing to outperform low vol um, while interest rates are falling. And we're, uh, what, some 20, uh, almost 20 days, uh, 20, what are we, uh, 26? So we're 18 days uh, in, into, the, uh, into the shadow of, of that trough in the Chinese one. And so you can also see it in, in the yield curve. So in particular, if we look at the spread between 10-year and three-month treasuries, um, they also peaked, uh, that spread uh, peaked at 38 basis points on November the 8th. Uh, today, it's 14 basis points. So, you know, it's, it, it's, uh, it's ridden back considerably. For some perspective, um, a, a year ago, uh, uh, in uh, the early part of 2000, excuse me, 18 months ago, in the early part of 2018, uh, the, the spread between 10 and threes uh, was 115 to 125 basis points. Um, and, and of course, it did invert um, uh, uh, early, uh, a little bit in December, and then inverted again um, in, in, in August and uh, in October of this year. So uh, the, the relationship, of course, is that, you know, an, uh, a flattening yield curve uh, tends to be a headwind for the high performance of, uh, of high beta relative to low volatility. And by all appearances, it appears that we're into another phase of the yield curve flattening, which uh, would seem to be on the surface um, a, uh, a, a negative variable for uh, continued outperformance of high beta relative to low vol. And then the last part to bring into that conversation is, is what we've seen in credit recently. Um, credit, especially uh, very low rated credit, um, uh, tends to uh, have pretty high correlation to the Chinese yuan um, as well for many of the reasons that we touched on in, in our last blog. Um, but recently we've seen um, uh, in the last couple of weeks, triple, triple C uh, option adjusted spreads widen out by about 85 basis points. <clears throat> They've gone from about 900 basis points to about 985 basis points. Um, and, and again, you know, these spreads tend to be fairly well correlated to, to movements in the Chinese yuan. So in early 18, uh, before the yuan devalued by about 10%, uh, triple C spreads are about 5%. Now, now they're about 10% um, after the yuan having uh, devalued by about 10%. So uh, with, that, with that move higher in the OAS of, of triple C uh, uh, rated uh, credit as measured by the Bloomberg triple C rated uh, option adjusted spread, that seems to be telegraphing in our models 
uh, a retreat of the Chinese yuan back to back to roughly the 720 range. Now, um, at the same time, you know, we're having a day today, uh, uh, Tuesday, November the 26th, um, of uh, another drippings of, of you know, good news on, on the trade front. And so with that, we see the, uh, the, uh, the offshore Chinese yuan, the CNH, um, appreciating a little bit relative to the onshore, the CNY, um, but only by about um, uh, uh, two, two, two cents. And so th that's, that's nothing, you know, terribly different than what we've seen in this, in this whole um, on again, off again, phase one trade deal optimism. Uh, the CNH, CNY spread moved to, you know, over two on August 13th, September 13th, uh, on, on October 4th, it moved to about four cents. And so today seeing it at, at two is not particularly, uh, not particularly alarming. It still looks like the trend uh, is toward, a, toward a, a, a weaker Chinese one. So with that, let's get back to uh, uh, Bryce, your observations on uh, some of the work you've been doing with respect to uh, um, the, the NIPA accounts and in particular um, intangible uh, investment data. Yeah, that sounds great, Steve. And, and thanks for that recap on, on uh, your views on, on the yuan and how that's affecting that, uh, that high beta, low volatility trade. That's interesting stuff. Um, well, we've been taking note of and investing around this generalized trend of, of increased corporate innovation um, investment for, for more than a decade now. And indeed, uh, the heart of our investment uh, strategies is this idea that highly innovative firms tend to be kind of misunderstood by the professional investment community. And as a consequence, those companies tend to outperform the broad equity market over time. So the fact that, that companies are increasing their investment in intangibles like R&D is, is really nothing new to us. But um, we, we did recently get some, some interesting data out of the U.S. government that confirms what we've been seeing at the company level. And the data I'm talking about is the, the fixed investment data, um, specifically the, the non-residential fixed investment data that is part of the, the GDP statistics produced by the, uh, the Bureau of Economic Analysis, the BEA. So every quarter, the BEA releases headline GDP. And, and in so doing, they release a lot of supporting piece parts that, that go into those, those GDP stats. Uh, one category of those piece parts is called private, domestic, non-residential, uh, fixed investment. And, um, and then within that category, there, we can kind of break that fixed investment up into um, subcategories that compose essentially um, business, business investment. And, and those categories are um, equipment, structures and intellectual property products. So equipment would be things like machines or even computer servers. Structures would be things like office buildings or, or um, more recently drilling rigs uh, have taken a larger share of that, uh, of that category. And then intellectual property products is things like um, R&D uh, uh, in-house developed software production. So uh, where all this gets interesting is that along the, the slowdown that we've seen um, so far in 2019, investment in structures has really taken it on the chin. It's fallen by about 5% year over year um, in Q3. And then investment in equipment is basically flat year over year. Um, but investment in intellectual property products is actually up 9%. Um, so that's a, that's a pretty dramatic divergence. Now we saw a similar trend of companies kind of maintaining this high level of IP investment um, to a greater extent than the other categories in, in the 2015 and 16 slowdown, we saw it 
in the 2011 slowdown. We even saw it in, in the recessions of 2008 and, and 2001, except that this time the investment component is, is even stronger than it was then uh, dur during each of those slowdowns. So the point here is that even, even during slowdowns and especially during this slowdown, the investment component and in intellectual property products um, has been much, much less affected um, than investment in either equipment or structures. And so this just tells us that companies are really behaving as though IP investment is their lifeblood, uh, which is consistent with the way that we, you know, the way that we think about the world and, and how we invest. Um, so um, all this means that uh, with investment in IP um, kind of maintaining growth at a, at a very high level while the other categories are either falling or, or, or remaining flat, all this means that investment in IP as a percent of total business investment um, is actually increasing uh, uh, quite a lot. So um, investment in equipment and structures is still larger in total than total investment in intellectual property products, but that trend is changing fast um, in part due to you know, these slowdown periods in which investment in IP just maintains it at a very high level. So if we go back to 1980, um, at the start of the, the tech revolution, um, investment in intellectual property products as a percent of total business investment was at just about 12%, um, while investment in the other two categories, equipment and structures was 88%. Um, now, um, you know, well into this trend of, of, uh, of, of the, the information revolution, um, investment in IP products is fully 36% of total business investment, which is an all-time high, um, while investment in, equip in equipment and structures is only 64% of the total, which is an all-time low. So we have business investment in IP as a percent of total going up and to the right, and business investment in equipment and structures going down and to the left, in an almost unabated trend really since, since 1980. Um, so that's the, the picture we get from the top-down view that was only reinforced by this most recent quarter. Um, but we're also seeing it um, from the bottoms-up perspective as well, and especially so among the most innovative companies, um, that, those ones that, that we invest in. So among all developed market companies, which is about 1,900 companies, um, in our universe that, that spans about 23 countries. CapEx uh, investment um, as a percent of sales, and this is a, um, this is a proxy for, for that fixed investment that we've been talking about. CapEx investment as a percent of sales has been completely flat since 2003, running at about 6.5%. While R&D investment as a percent of sales, and, and again, we're using R&D here as a proxy for um, intangible investment, even though it's only one component uh, of that intangible investment, um, is now at an all-time high of about 2.2% compared to just 1.5% 10 years ago. So, you know, we've got growth in R&D investment as a percent of sales of about 40% over a decade, and CapEx as a percent of sales basically flat. Now, we see the same thing among the most highly innovative companies, except to a larger degree. Um, our universe of knowledge leaders, which consists of about 700 of the most highly innovative firms out there across these, these 23 developed market countries. Among this group, CapEx as a percent of sales has been flat for about 15 years um, at 6%. 
while R&D as a percent of sales has risen from 3.7% to 5.3%, which is well into all-time high uh, ter uh, territory. Um, and, and, and now we've got, among knowledge leaders, investment in R&D that is almost surpassing investment in physical CapEx. Um, now we can break that down and uh, even further and just look at the U.S. knowledge leaders um, as a proxy for maybe the most innovative firms in the world. Um, perhaps they are, perhaps not, but, but we've got some statistics around that. And among just U.S. knowledge leaders, um, and that consists of about 200 or so of the most highly innovative companies in the U.S., CapEx hasn't budged in, for 15 years and remains at about 5.5% of sales, while R&D investment as a percent of sales is up from about three and a quarter to 6.8% in, um, in the most recent data that I pulled. So it's more than doubled um, over a 15 year period. Um, and now R&D investment is, is um, well surpassing um, both investment in physical CapEx as well as, well as where it was even um, in the years of the tech boom. And the tech boom, R&D investment as a percent of sales was just 4.25%. Uh, um, and this is among the, the, the most highly innovative group of companies that, that we track. So those are um, some interesting stats that I, that I pulled together. But the, the question I think that um, remains important for investors is what all this means. You know, how, how does this fit into your portfolio? And our work shows that Firms that invest heavily in intangibles, things like R&D, um, but also other intangibles like in-house developed software, databases, uh, teaching employees how to use software, things like that. These companies tend to outperform over time. And we can get into the, the whys and wherefores of, be, behind that um, phenomenon in, a, in another podcast, and we certainly will do that. Um, but, um, but this is all a natural consequence of the shift in um, investment that businesses are making, um, and especially so among the most innovative rich firms out there. And this just means that highly innovative firms continue to be uh, well positioned to, um, to maintain their streak of, of, of outperformance relative to the broad equity market. Interesting, interesting, Bryce. And, and, and with that, Steve, I know um, you've done some research recently on one of those companies that is in our universe, a Swedish company called Hexagon. And I was wondering if you could give our listeners um, a quick recap of some of that research that you did. Sure, sure. Um, you know, we, we attempt to uncover innovation around the world. And uh, a place like Stockholm, Sweden is, uh, is very rich uh, in innovation. So founded in, in 1992 to build sensor and measurement tools for, for factories, farms, and mines, um, hexagons at work today fusing the physical world uh, with the digital. So by integrating hard data collection with software, mobile, and cloud-based technologies, uh, uh, this knowledge leader uses tools of the digital revolution uh, to power a new generation of smart farms, factories, mines, uh, energy plants, construction sites, urban infrastructure, you know, cities of the future, things of that nature. Um, their unique focus is on connecting uh, data feeds, people, machines, and processing power. Um, and it's the third most innovative company in Sweden, uh, measured uh, by R&D as a percent of sales. Uh, the company has roughly 3,700 patents, has roughly 3,800 uh, employees, 
um, out of its 20,000 total employee base that are dedicated solely to R&D uh, activities. And so today, hexagon sensors capture or process half of the world's geospatial imagery, uh, contributing 42% of their sales. Uh, and customers are using it to create 3D models for surveying construction, uh, public safety, and agriculture. Um, their geospatial customers uh, are, are very diverse, spread around the world. Um, Europe, Middle East, and Asia account for about 43% of, of this division sales, while Americas are about 38%. Uh, and 18, uh, 19%, excuse me, uh, of geospatial sales are in Asia. Um, their industrial sensors <clears throat> gather laser and scanner data for design and manufacturing. Uh, and here, you know, roughly 40% of sales are, are in Asia, uh, about 32 in Europe, Middle East, and Africa, and 19% uh, in the Americas. Uh, and here's a, a, a great stat. Uh, every year, Hexagon Solutions touch 75% of cars, 90% of aircraft, and 85% of all smartphones built, um, which, uh, which, is, which is just a, a phenomenally interesting statistic for a, a company that most have, have never heard of before. Um, uh, a result of all the data collection going on, uh, a function of the digital revolution, uh, according to Hexagon, is that the promise of the internet of things has turned into uh, an age uh, of complexity. And so in its most recent annual report, the firm calls on industrial companies to put to work the enormous, uh, enormous amounts of data that they create. Uh, and this is where uh, Hexagon comes in, uh, taming the complexity. Uh, their solutions take vast amounts of data from connected devices to enable smart autonomous systems. So last year, the firm made headlines with a new project to monitor and re, uh, rehabilitate a dam in India, uh, build an immersive 3D experience of a Frank Lloyd Wright home that I've actually been to right outside of Phoenix, Arizona, and deliver a, a situational awareness and tracking project for Canada's uh, Bombardier um, uh, aerospace company. Um, so in the, future, in the future, Hexagon aims to enable entire industrial ecosystems that can learn and adapt to new conditions in real time uh, autonomously. Um, and so software uh, and services contribute about 55% of their revenues. Um, so uh, uh, wherever, we, wherever we turn, uh, companies that um, you know, have an aggressive, deliberate strategy of uh, investing huge sums in innovation, there's always an interesting story behind it. Uh, whether it's in, uh, in, in the United States, in Sweden, in, in Japan, wherever. Um, and, and Hexagon is just another, another interesting story, I think, that jumps off the page. Uh, listeners can find uh, a written version uh, of the spotlight um, on our website. Uh, and, and so with that, Bryce, I think that uh, we've really covered innovation today from, uh, from the top down to the bottoms up. Yeah, I guess we have, Steve. And uh, thanks for that great summary of, of what Hexagon is doing. I think, um, you, you know, it, it, it sometimes um, uh, passes investors by all, all this uh, investment that the companies are making in their future that um, isn't necessarily captured by some of our accounting statistics. And, and we can get into that later, but uh, certainly a lot of interesting stories out there. So thanks for, for sharing that with our listeners. Um, so with that, we'll conclude today's podcast. Thank you all for listening to The Intangible Investor, and please come visit us at www.knowledgeleaderscapital.com to learn about our products and our unique way of investing in global financial markets. Please also send us your comments and feedback by emailing us at info at klcapital.com. Until next time, 
This is Bryce Coward and Stephen Benelli signing off and wishing everyone a very happy Thanksgiving.